how many days are we into this course? Anybody know? Anybody keeping track? Anybody have like a chain? You're taking, adding a link or taking a link off? Depends when you start. Well, that took you a year and a half, I think. Thanks a lot. No, this is our, uh, if I'm not mistaken, fourth Sunday. We started three Sundays ago. January 25th, and we've looked at some different things. The first week we talked about the inspiration of Scripture. Why should we trust the Bible? Is the Bible trustworthy? And we looked at some reasons uh, historically and scientifically that that the Bible has validity. It has value. We can trust it. And then a couple weeks ago we, we talked about what is the purpose of the Bible? How can the Bible make a difference in your life? Namely, it was given to change us. And then last week we talked about the need we have for the Holy Spirit to illuminate the Bible, to open the eyes of our heart, as Marie reminded us a few minutes ago, so that we can see what's in there. And we looked at different people in Scripture, the record of their lives, where sometimes the solution was right in front of them, sometimes Jesus was right in front of them, but it wasn't until the eyes of their heart were opened that they were able to see the thing that God wanted them to see. And so, so today I want to talk about know how you describe it in a word or or in a phrase, but we're going to talk about how to study the Bible. What a concept. What an ideal. Why not? You're thinking, preacher, we've been in this small group. We've been in this small group, and every week they're telling us a different way to study the Bible. And you're going to give us another one? We have too many ways to study the Bible. Incorrect. Okay, maybe you just have enough. But but there's, there's lots of different ways. So what I want to talk about today is sort of a a baseline undercurrent to every way Pastor Rick Warren is going to teach us or has taught us how to study the Bible. What is it at heart? How can we take a Bible passage and somehow see the things that God wants us to see that apply to our lives? And I'm going to look today at Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. We're not going to throw the words up on the screen for the whole account, but as we go through, we'll look at some things. So so maybe if you were in week one, you noticed we read through the book of Philippians. And if you did that with us in week one, this might be a familiar passage to you. But, but I want to read it because I think it brings out some interesting things for us to show us the importance of lots of places in the Bible. Paul's writing, uh, Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19, he says this, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him. And not only him, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor men like him because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give him. It's an interesting section. It's an interesting 
part of the book of Philippians. It's actually a rather personal part of the book of Philippians. And as you read through it, um, you might think, oh, that's nice. Paul is looking out for a couple people. He's got a couple of friends. He's he's concerned for people. Um, That's interesting. But what is easy to overlook and the difference, as Pastor Warren has told us, between reading and studying is what we want to spend, spend the next few minutes talking about. What can we learn from this passage of, Bi- of the Bible? Particularly, do we have any fellows here today? Two blue Valentine's Day? Oh, nobody's going to admit it. Let, no, I shouldn't ask the ladies, because the guy's probably thinking, man, I did great, and the ladies are going to know it was awful. But we won't go there. So, so this is like your belated Valentine's Day zippity doo Any excited guys? Oh, I feel it. I feel it today. Because I think in this passage, there are some important things we as men can learn. And, and I think in some ways you'll see some of these things could apply as well to any believer in Christ. But I want to zero in on us guys today, because I think the two people that are mentioned in here are guys. Fellas, sorry, you guys. Fellas. Now, now what I want you to understand when we, when we open a passage of Scripture, even though you might read this or hear it read and think, you know, there's not a lot in there. He's just making some personal notes, as Paul would do in a lot of his letters. It's easy to maybe just skip right over that and, and move on. But we've learned through our study one of the, the verses we started with in week one is in 2 Timothy chapter 3 where it says all Scripture, every word of Scripture, the whole thing is profitable for us. That, that we can use it for teaching and proof, correction, for training in righteousness so that we, the people of God, are thoroughly equipped for every good work. So what can we find in this? And this is how maybe we've learned some ways, but this is how I would suggest to you. What are you going to do to take this passage and make some sense of it and get some some good stuff out of it. The first thing you're going to do is take your pen and notebook, right? Remember what Rick Warren said? The difference between reading the Bible and studying the Bible is writing something down. What's the first thing you might write down? The first thing you might write down is, I just want to make some observations. I've got my notebook, I've got my pen, I've read these verses. Just, Just what is it about? What do I see here? Well, several things might jump out at you. One thing you might say, this is what I see in this passage. I see that that Paul wants to send two people on a trip to the church at Philippi. Pretty simple, right? I'm going to send two people. I'm going to send Timothy and Epaphroditus. Verse 19, verse 25. He says that in particular. That's important. That's kind of an observation. Maybe it doesn't mean much to you, but, but that's what we see here. Another thing you might see about those two people is Paul says, these two people are role models for you. Notice he uses the same word about each of them. If you look in verse 20, he says about Timothy, I have no one else like him. So, so there's something significant about Timothy. That's no small thing. Paul is one of the, the key leaders in the early church. He's the one that, that traveled all over, starting all these churches, a great evangelist, the apostle to the Gentiles, most of of the world at that time outside of Jerusalem that had a Christian church probably owed something to the life and ministry of Paul. He's a hero. He's, he's one that 
now in prison in Rome, but, but as he thinks about his life and ministry, of all the people that he's come in contact with, he says, I have no one else like Timothy. There's something significant about Timothy. But, but notice as well, he's not the only one that, that Paul recommends. If you go to verse 29, it says, Welcome him, meaning Epaphroditus, in the Lord with great joy, and honor men like him. So when he sees Epaphroditus, he sees something in him as well that's valuable, that's worth, as he says, honoring. He's a role model. You think of Timothy, who's like, hey, Paul is his right-hand man. He's no one like him. And Epaphroditus is the kind of person you want to look up to and you want to honor. So, so I could write that. Paul wants to send a couple of people to this church, and these are their names. And and not only that, there, there's something commendable about them, which brings me to the next observation. What are they like? If you want to find out people like Timothy and Epaphroditus, Paul says there's no one like him, and honor men like him. I need to know what are they like so I can get to know the kinds of things. And so what does this passage tell us? What are some things we learn about Timothy and Epaphroditus? Well, we know, uh, first of all, Timothy. Verse 20 and 21, takes genuine interest in your welfare. Everybody looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So that's something positive Paul says about Timothy. Uh, verse 22, he also says about um, Timothy that he has proven himself as a son with his father. He served me. So there's something commendable about that. We could go down to verse 25. Uh, Epaphroditus, he's a brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier. Okay, that's probably significant. Paul is using three different ways of describing him. That might mean something to us. Uh, verse 26, he says, he longed for all of you and was distressed because he heard, you heard he was ill. And then in verse 27, it says, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him. And then verse 30, it says, because he almost died risking his life to make up for the help. There's something about what Epaphroditus did that, that was significant. There was risk involved. And so, so maybe you just start and say, I've just observed some things in this, in this passage. I've observed that there's two guys that Paul wants to send. There's something significant about their example, their role models. And as Paul describes them, he lists several things that he notes about them that might be worth investigating. So we go from just, I've read it and I've jotted down some notes about what I see. To, to go to the what does what I see mean part of this question. This is, this is important. Because you say, well, if you write down what the Bible says, doesn't the Bible say what it means? And the answer is yes and no. For instance, let's say I wrote you a letter today that in a thousand or two thousand years somebody dug up. And in that letter I said something like, would you quit pulling my leg? And in 2,000 years, somebody read that and said, huh, there seemed to be a cultural phenomenon where people would grab other people's legs and yank them. That seems significant. Maybe we should bring back that habit in our modern world or in our future world and just start yanking each other's legs. Is that what I meant? That's what I said. Surely that's what I meant. No, it's an idiom. It, it has some significance if you know the culture, you know the language, you know what's happening here, you know pulling Someone's leg means teasing them, kind of hitting them. And so you need to know, even though it says pulling its leg, that's not what it means. Do you see what I mean? Sometimes what it says isn't what it means. Not only that, words are significant. For instance, I could talk about, um, I'm going to use the word pin, P-I-N. Did you know there are 
50 to 60 meanings of the word sin? Yeah, come on. Well, you're going bowling, and I talk about pins. That's something, right? If you're cooking, and I say, get out your rolling pin, something's different. If I go to a wrestling match, and I say, there, the win was by a pin, they're all the same word, right? That's just three. It means something different. How do you know what that word means? Well, you consider the context. You need to know, is he talking about cooking? Is he talking about wrestling? Is he talking about bowling? And that adds something to the meaning. So the word itself has different meaning depending on the context in which it's used. In fact, I have a professor in the seminary that said text without context is pretext, which means if you take something out of the Bible and you just say, oh, I'm just going to look at this and that's it, and don't see what's around it, you could come up with all sorts of crazy, wackadoo ideas. And people have done that very thing. And people still do that very thing. There's whole cults and religions that start because somebody pulled a word or a phrase or a verse out of context and ran with it. So, so what it says is important, but then we have to go to what it means. And so sometimes a word gets definition or gets meaning by its context. Another thing that, that we need to understand about the difference between what it says and what it means is the difference between the language, Greek or Hebrew, in this in the New Testament case, Greek, and English. We look at the NIV or the King James or whatever version you have, it's a translation. And in the Bible, if you took like the Greek and Hebrew translate or the Greek and Hebrew versions of the Bible, it's eleven to twelve thousand different words that show up in Greek and Hebrew. If you look in English, most English translations have around eight thousand words. It's a significant difference, right? With the same amount of time. For instance, one example that you're probably aware of is the word love. I love my wife. I love pizza. Those are different. They better be different. Right? It means something different. In Greek, there are four different words that the English word love translates. Eros, storge, phileo, and agape. And they all mean something different, from erotic to brotherly to strong to unconditional. Each one of those words, and so when you're reading, in fact, one of the most famous passages where that's important is when Jesus appears to Peter after the resurrection. And you know he asked him several times, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? That's how English translates. If you go in the Greek, there's different words for love used in those three things. It's not, even though we see one English word in the Greek of that text, there are different Greek words. And so that adds a layer of meaning to it that you don't trust in English. Which, by the way, is one reason when you're trying to go from what it says to what it means, you'll sometimes use different translations. I have in my office, I should have brought it out, my dad's parallel Bible. I remember years ago, he was desperate to get the, the layman parallel Bible. It had four versions in it. And I am, you want to talk about a Bible that hurts somebody. It is a big book. It's, you know, I mean, there's four columns. And each column is a different translation. I think it's King James. Uh, I don't remember. I'm not even exactly. Four translations. I, okay, so it's a lot. Big, hard-bound, thick 
you know, probably twice the size square of this and ten times the, the thickness of this. It's a great tool. He was so excited to get that when he got it because he could look and have four different versions of the Bible side by side. Why is that important? Because different translations, A, have different ways of handling the Greek or Hebrew text, different translation theories, and they can show the shades of meaning of the word. Now, here's the wonderful thing in our day and time. You don't need a four-foot-thick layman's parallel Bible. Um, I should have brought it. Carlos, can you hold up that little black thing that's on top of my book? It's right in there. Not just four translations, but 400 translations, it feels like. In your smartphone, or one of my favorite, I actually don't use my phone for this. I do this um, online. There's a, there's a website called BibleGateway.com. If you're not familiar with it, great website. There's another website called Bible.org. does similar things. BibleGateway.com is the one I use more for this. You, it has just a number of different translations, and you can list them in parallel. So let's say you pulled up Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 19 through 30, and it's got a little button you click, and it says add parallel. And then it's a drop-down menu, and you can pick, I put in the NIV, I put in the King James, you put it out, you can have five or six, depending on how big your monitor is and how hard you want to work, five or six translations side by side on your monitor. Again, that's why I don't use my phone. Right there in front of you. If you have the app U version on your phone, it has a bunch of translations you can use, either download to have on your phone all the time, or if you're connected to the Internet, you can just go there. You can go just by clicking where it says the, the initials for the translation. There's a drop-down menu. You can go from NIV to KJV to ESV to CEV to CNLT to CBT. No, I don't know what it is. Just on and on. And why do you do that? Not because necessarily saying this translation is better than that one, but you're saying different translations take different shades of meaning. So it helps you maybe see things in English that are present in the original language that you couldn't see anymore. Because what the Bible says isn't always exactly what it means. So you take what it says and you do that kind of word, uh, not word study necessarily, but, but you go a little deeper to talk about context see if there's some shades of meaning based on that particular word to help me understand what's at issue here. Maybe you see, is this an idiom? Does it mean something then that I don't see if I look at it literally? And so I go from observing what it says to interpreting what it says and trying to get the, what does it mean out of it? And when I do that, I find some pretty significant things. In fact, here's, fellas, are you ready? Ladies, are you ready? Woohoo! Yeah, right. You guys are like, I don't like this. It's not even Father's Day, preacher. Father's Day, I'm supposed to get this, but today's the day after Valentine's Day. I worked hard yesterday. I spent money yesterday. You can't be mean to me today. Yeah, I can. So, so let's just look. We, we saw some things. We saw five things that Paul said about First Timothy and then Epaphroditus. What do those mean for us? Well, the first thing was in, in verse 21. I think we're going to show you that. Verse 20 and 21. What does it say in verse 20 and 21 about, in this case, Timothy? It says this. I have no one else who's like him. So we said, what's, what's he like? Who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. What is it about 
Timothy for Paul that made him so significant? Well, he seems to be the kind of person that is, well, how do you want to describe one that takes a genuine interest in your welfare? He is, shall we say, caring. Now, caring can mean a lot of things. Caring can have a lot of levels. Somebody can be interested in you, but, but notice the qualification. He takes a genuine interest in your welfare. A lot of people are caring for you when it benefits them. Have you noticed that? You know, you know how somebody sometimes is, is really interested in what you've got going if ultimately it'll help them? But it's rare to find a person like this. Like, Paul says, I don't have many people like this. Many people that look out for the interest of others in a genuinely caring way. We have a culture that tells us lots of things about us. That we should you know, look out for number one. And we're bombarded with messages that tell us how our lives could be so much better. And we have celebrities that are models for us, that, that live lives that many people want to emulate. And often when you look behind the scenes of the, the well-polished image, it's not a person that's out for anybody but themselves. But Timothy, there's something about him that he is genuinely interested in others. He's genuinely interested in the welfare of others. He is genuinely caring. He is selfless in his concern. He doesn't come across as somebody just trying to work an angle to get what he wants. No, he really cares about other people. So, so let's just put this in a kind of a fella and gal context. So, so, so ladies, here's my list. I wrote some things down. Um, how to see if a person is, is really genuinely interested in, in the greater good and others. Number one, does he only talk about himself? We have conversations that are always about him. Hmm, maybe that's a sign. He's not. Does he ever open the door for you? Did he last night on the way to dinner? Now, there's no elbowing allowed in, in that. This is just you and the Holy Spirit. Has he ever brought you dinner or cooked dinner for you because he knew you were just so busy and he didn't have time? And it wasn't because you told him to cook dinner for you because you were so busy, but he knew you were so busy that he went out of his way to make sure... That was done for you. Isn't that nice? Does he ever ask for your opinion? Yeah. Will he cancel his plans if you're sick so he can take care of you? Now again, we're not poking around. I'm just in your heart of hearts. No one looking around, every eye closed. Maybe we should pull out that. I don't know. I feel like Billy Graham all of a sudden. Is he obsessed over how he looks, his appearance? Still some thing that are looking at. Does he clean up his own mess and go expect you to do it? I have more. That's enough. Man, those are just some things. Now, those are in, in a context of a relationship. But you can see in just a few observations what does it mean to be genuinely caring about the welfare of others, to put self second. In fact, if you just back up a few verses in Philippians chapter 2, 
it talks about Jesus as the example of that. And it says in verse 3, Do nothing out of selfish ambition, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. And then a few verses later, Paul says, Timothy's that kind of person. There's no one like him. He's genuinely cares and looks out for the welfare of others. He's about the things of God. And so, so we, we see that and we say, okay, there's something there in, in a character quality. Maybe, maybe I should think about as a, as a follower of God, as a man, as I treat others. Verse, verse 22, keep going. Another thing he says about Timothy, he says, but you know that Timothy has proven or proved himself. What does it mean to prove himself? It means that, that he was tested, he was verified. There's something about him that, that rings true. It's not just a one-time thing. Maybe we would use this word. Timothy showed a consistent character. Wherever you look in his life, as Paul looked at him, and, and as a son with his father, so there's a close relationship there. It's not from a distance. Paul saw him up close and personal. And he said, in him, I see Timothy, a man who's proved consistency. He's the same way with me when, when nobody's looking as he is when everybody's looking. He's the same way with me as he is with others. Everywhere I go, there's consistency in his character. Somebody put it this way, it's the difference between having an opinion and having a conviction. If you have an opinion, you'll argue over that all day long. But persons of conviction, men of conviction, you might say are willing to die for those convictions. Timothy was the kind of person who would go to those lengths because that was just who he was. And he was proven. He was tested. He was consistent in his character. We need that kind of person in the church of God. We need that kind of person in our lives. We need as men to be that kind of person for those around us, people that have been proven and people that others can count on and look to for consistency in our lives, that there's something about us that they can trust because they've seen it over and over and over, time and again. Right when you were perfect, and then they said, okay, you're allowed to say amen. We're not perfect. In fact, you tell us when we're not, and we, we appreciate that, that job that you do for us. It helps us be more consistent. But we prove ourselves, and there's a consistency over time. And so something about Timothy, I've got no one like him. He genuinely cares for others. And he's consistent. He's proven. That's something that, that I could learn from. That might be something I need to think about for my own life. A few verses later, let's, let's think about Epaphroditus in verse, verse 25. My brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier. That's an interesting thing that he says in verse 25. I'm going to send back Epaphroditus. And he, he calls him those three things. What do those three things mean? Why does he call him brother, a fellow worker, and a soldier? Well, maybe because those are the roles that we see Epaphroditus take that represents who we should be in the church. We are a family. The church is a family. We, we often say, not we often say, but some churches often say, when somebody comes to faith in Christ, welcome to God's family. And if you grew up like I did in a church, everybody was brother such and so and sister this and that, right? In fact, that's just how you talked about them. Just called them brother Jim, brother Charles, sister Sue, sister whoever, and on and on it went. You just called them that because that's how it worked. In fact, the Bible actually says about the leaders of the church, one of the qualifications that they have 
is that they manage their own family well. Why? Because the church is a family. So we want the leaders of the family demonstrating qualities in family relationship that make sense. And so he's my brother. We're in this together. He's my fellow worker. We have the building over here. has a little sign on it where we eat. What do we call that building? The Fellowship Hall. The church is a family. The church is also a fellowship. Now, that doesn't mean the church is one big potluck. Although, on the breezeway, there's food. So we've got this. No, it means the church is a cooperative effort of its pieces on a mission together to accomplish the things of God. Rick Warren, in another study I did years ago, talked about what is the definition of fellowship. It's two fellows in the same ship. And that's what we are. We're all fellows in this ship called the Church of Jesus Christ. And we have a common task. We have a common goal. We have a common commission, the Great Commission, to go and make disciples. And when we get in it together, we work together. And Paul, in his ministry, had a brother in Epaphroditus, a family member. He also had somebody who would stand shoulder to shoulder with him, working for God, working for the gospel. Not only that, he's my fellow soldier. Hey, did you know? Not only are we a family and a fellowship, but we're an army. And we don't sing those songs anymore. They've taken some of them out of the, the, the hymn book even. But, but we have an enemy. And he's a real live enemy. And he is a dangerous enemy. And the Bible says he is seeking whom he may devour. Not play with like a ball of yarn with a little keeper. No, he's a lion. And lions eat. And when they eat, it gets messy. That's what I've heard. I've seen the videos on Discovery Channel. Not good, right? We have that adversary. And when you're in that battle, believe me, you need fellow soldiers with you in the battle. Because sometimes the battle is too big to fight alone. And you need to know there's someone in this with me. There's someone who's got my back. There's someone praying for me. There's someone that's there when I'm hurt and will tend to my wounds. There's someone I can confide in. All of those things. And Paul says, I see an Epaphroditus, a brother, a fellow worker, and a soldier that I can stand shoulder to shoulder with to face whatever life has. And that's something we can learn. Hey, if we're going to be the people in the church of God, that should be the kind of men we should be. We should understand that we're a family. And we treat the older men as fathers and the older women as mothers and the younger men as, and, and women as siblings, as brothers and sisters. That, that we don't see those who are older than us and say, oh, they're just, they're just old fuddy-duddies. They don't know anything. Maybe that was the way they did it back in the 50s, back in the old days. No. They might have a few scars that we could keep from getting if we listen. And we don't look at the, the younger and say, oh, they're just a little whippersnapper. They don't know any better. No, they're like brothers and sisters. We treat them like that. We, we respect them like that. We don't pick on them like that. That doesn't work as well, but nonetheless, we might have a few. We, we look at them in that way and, and in that family, in that, in that work, in that battle. We know that, that we need each other, that I'm the kind of person that cooperates and shares and works together with. So I can learn that from Epaphroditus. I can say, okay, that's something I need. Do, do I like to go it alone? And I've confessed that in my own life. I would rather be alone with my, my books or whatever and, and just kind of shut out the world. And I realize more and more that's just not how it works. I need other people. I can't be 
all by myself. Paul, brilliant man, highly educated, a go-getter, a zealot, willing to risk everything, still understood he needed other people. He needed to, to learn that from him. Verse 26, for he longs for all of you and is distressed because you're holding your good. Here's Epaphroditus, who was sent, we don't know the background, but Epaphroditus was sent from the church at Philippi to Paul, who was in prison in Rome with an offering. Now let's pretend I said today, okay, we're going to collect an offering today for a church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, which is about 835 miles from here. I looked up some map stuff this morning. That's about how far Philippi was from Rome. And I need somebody here to volunteer to walk this offering through Chattanooga. Who would do that? Men? Anyone? Anyone? No. I mean, that would be a big thing to ask, wouldn't it? That's what Epaphroditus did for Paul. Took the offering, towed it, you know, before all the ways of modern transportation were available. It took a while to get there. And we see that, that apparently along the way he fell ill and people were worried about him. And he heard that they were worried about him, and so he was worried about them. That's a nice fella, huh? We might even call that a very considerate gentleman, wouldn't we? We need to be considerate with others. That's a good quality to have. Not just to to genuinely care, but, but to defer, to be considerate about them, to take their feelings into account. Did you know that? 1 Peter chapter 3, Husbands, be considerate as you live with your wives. You know, that's one of the things we're supposed to do. We're actually told to be and considerate as we live with our wives. Did you know women are different than men? Did anybody else know that? I, I just learned this. I, I studied some things this week. You know, here, in fact, I, I brought a couple of pictures for you. It was Valentine's Day yesterday. They're all about romance, right? I don't know, fellas. I found a diagram that accurately somewhat depicts how you need to woo your wife in romantic ways. And I think the picture's going to come up next, so Chuck, you're going to I can't wait to see this. Any minute now. There it is. You've got gauges, you've got switches, you've got knobs to turn, and they've all got to be set just right. And depending on the prevailing wind, this is the space shuttle cockpit for the record. That's the best analogy I could think for the romance settings of your wife. Now, I also wanted to show you a guy's romance setting. It's the next picture. That's pretty much it. We're different. Just just one switch. Right? You ever gone shopping with your wife? On purpose? Yes. I mean, somebody described it, and... I know all people are different. This might not apply to everybody, but, you know, guys go shopping like we're hungry. We need a pair of jeans. I can find them at Old Navy for $19.99. If I park close enough, I can get in and out in seven minutes. Seven minutes, $22, done. Your wife needs a pair of jeans. Three hours and 45 minutes and $800 later, she's got jeans and the matching outfit with the shoes and the, all the accoutrements to go with them, the purses and the jewel, right? And she has to 
What does it mean to be considerate? Epaphroditus was a considerate person. He heard that they were upset about him. And even though he was the one that was ill and had risked his life, he still was worried about them. That's consideration. That's something to be admired. That's something that we're supposed to build as men and husbands into our lives. And then notice verse 30. It kind of hints at it in verse 27, but goes on in verse 30. Because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help he could not make. How about the courage that might be involved in that? He risked his life. I mean, I just told you that the physical distance between point A and point B had to travel. We know from this record he also had some health problems that came up. Nearly died. Maybe it was guns. Maybe it was other issues. It was not a small thing, but he was willing to do that. He was courageous enough to do that on behalf of others. And here's, the, I think, the key point we can get out of that. A lot of men are courageous for a thrill, aren't they? So mountain climbing, excellent. Want to go mountain? Me too, I want to go mountain. Want to go diving? Technical dive? Cave dive? Maybe on a wreck out there and kind of get into the different compartments and have to monitor all the things. You know, that's exciting. You might see some go diving and there's sharks. Woohoo! Okay. You know, in business, there's some courageous people that take all sorts of risks. Maybe because they hope at the end of that risk, there'll be a little reward. But, but that's not Epaphroditus's motive. He's not courageous to hopefully in the end benefit himself with a thrill or with financial gain. No, he's willing to risk his life for Paul, who's in prison in Rome, for really to to make the journey back to reassure those back in Philippi who are concerned about him. He's willing to risk something for the kingdom of God. That's the kind of courageous people the church needs. One of my, my heroes faith is Jim Ellison. You may be familiar with he and, and his uh, co-workers who went into the, the jungles of South America among the, at that time they were called the Alpha Indians. That's what all the books said. I, they've been renamed since and I don't remember the names in the new movie that came out a few years ago about one of the most famous founding pilots' sons. And you know, they went in there and made contact with these people with the simple sake with the simple goal of sharing the gospel with them. And as they communicated back with their wives, they, they landed a plane on a, a, just a sandy beach by a river and set up camp there and had uh, one of the natives from that tribe come over and make contact with them. And then a few days later, as they were flying the plane, they'd go over the, the villages and drop different things to the villagers, to the people there, and hopefully to entice them to say, hey, we're, we're here for you. We're here with friends. They'd go over one... One day, as the pilot was flying the plane, he saw a group from this village making their way toward where they were camped. And so Jim Elliott and the others got on the radio to their wives back uh, away from that area and said, Hey, we're excited. They're coming. It might be our first opportunity to share the gospel with these people. I'll call you at such such a time tonight or tomorrow. Well, if you're familiar with the story, you know the radio never crackled back to life. They never heard from, from those missionaries out in that part of South America. And so a few days later, they sent a search party and circled where they could camp. And they found 
the plane trip, and what they could only imagine were signs of struggle. They had already been found ultimately to be killed by these Jews. Pretty remarkable. You know, there is a he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And he just lives it. That's courage to do that. Hey, not to be outdone. They're wise when they fall to pieces. We don't know this part of the story. We know this verse is missing. Their wives, the wives of those missionaries that were killed, are the ones that went back to that same village and eventually won that group, that village to Christ. People who lost their husbands, the very people that had killed them, now they show the love. They return to the Lord and Savior. And again, that's way more courage than I want to think about when I go back. Look somebody in the eye who killed my spouse and be able to say, my husband died so that you might one day feel that God loved you enough that he sent his son to die for you. And now this formerly violent tribe has been transformed. The movie a few years ago was called The End of the Street. It's worth watching as it tells the story of what happened after the thing, the end of the spear. They were, they were violent. Now, the end of the spear means we're not going to spear anymore. We're not going to use the spear. Our lives have been transformed by the gospel of Christ. Good story. What happened in that day? And so, what do we do? We start out by saying, I just noticed a few things. I noticed these two people. I noticed Paul thought they were pretty amazing people. And he thought they were amazing people for a few reasons. And where did he get? We got to. Well, look, they're people that are caring for others. Genuinely caring. They're people that are proven. They're consistent in their walk. They're, they are people that that have lived in a way that we can emulate. That they, they did it over and over and over again. Not only that, but, but they're, they're people that need others. They're workers and soldiers and brothers. And, and they're, they're considerate. They look out for the interests of others. They're courageous. They also are devoted to Jesus. And uh, we saw that. And then what do I do? Here's the part. What was our verse last week? Don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. So I ask myself, am I that kind of person? Am I caring? Do I, you know, that list, there's my list, those six or eight or nine things. If I had to check myself on those things, is that how I act? If I didn't, God help me. Help me to genuinely care for others. Am I consistent? Am I the same at church as I am at home, as I am at work, as I am out in the neighborhood, as I am in, in the grocery store when somebody with 11 items in line in front of me and there's press on them and I'm not, I'm still looking at them. person who recognizes my need for others? Am I someone who they would look at as a brother? Someone who genuinely cares for them, who's related to them in that way in Christ? And, and a worker, not a taker, but a contributor, and a soldier, somebody who they would say, I, that I have their back. Am I considerate? taking a risk when it benefits me. Where, does, where can I do that? Maybe it's 
in my home. Maybe it's in my job. Maybe it's somewhere else. And I begin to take those things that I first just saw by looking at what it says, and then pick it apart. See, what we find is, no matter where we look in this book, God can speak to us. And God can use us to change our lives and become more like Him. That's why it says, all Scripture is useful so that we, the people of God, thoroughly equipped for every good work. 